morning. And uh, as we start our time in the Word today, would you join me, first of all, in praying? Father, uh, we are immersed in a world full of conflict. And a lot of times, Lord, we are completely ignorant to the reality of that conflict that is happening around us all the time. And as we dive into the scriptures today, you give us the end of the story. You tell us how things are going to be resolved, and you point us to a future hope that we might live with purpose and with power today in the midst of the conflict. So, Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit right now, you would open up our hearts to receive the seed of the kingdom, that it would be planted deeply in the, the sacred places of our inner being, and that it would become for us an anchor for our souls. So God, even right now, refresh us with your spirit and give us an ear to not only receive your word, but to hear your voice and apply your word to our lives today. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 5 through 9. I've titled our message for today, Victory in Jesus. And in the back of my mind is a, a, a memory from my childhood. Uh, I grew up in a church out in Cave Junction. Um, and there was a guy there named Lloyd Thogmartin who was kind of, he was a, a Christian singer-songwriter, did a lot of bluesy music, played a lot of like going to prisons and, and, and ministering to that crowd. But... Uh, did anybody grow up singing from hymnals? Yeah? Okay. So there's, there's a famous hymnal or famous hymn from the hymnal called Victory in Jesus. And, you know, it was written kind of in an older style and he felt like it was kind of archaic. And so he's like, man, this is, this is a song that should thump, right? This is a song that should have some rhythm to it. And so he, he rewrote Victory in Jesus to a sort of bluesy backbeat that a song that really thumped. And man, I remember our church when I was a kid, I was just a little tyke, uh, jamming out to victory in Jesus at the top of their lungs, you know, just, just singing out with all of their hearts, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. My hope is today that by the time our, our time in the scriptures is finished, that each one of us will take that reality of the victory that is in Christ, and we'll, we'll grab it and clutch that truth a little bit closer. It'll become a little bit more of the reality of what side of this conflict we are really on. So let's begin by reading our verses for today. The big idea here is that Jesus is a superior messenger with a superior message who secures for us a superior victory. Verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. 
and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For those of you who are note takers and like to organize your thoughts, we're going to be following sort of three movements within the text. The first movement is verse 5 through verse 8, the first part, 8a, man's role in God's rule. Man's role in God's rule. Then the second part of verse 8 tells us that we live in the already, not yet. 8b, we live in the already, not yet. And verse 9, finally, Christ's death brought life. Christ's death brought life. Now, in order to properly understand the passage that we're, that we're in, we're going to have to do a little bit of thinking and word work together. And uh, one of the things I'm really thankful about being in, a, one of the things about being in a church that goes scripture by scripture, verse by verse, all the way through the Bible, is that you are forced to confront things and think deeply about things that you would likely want to skip over because it just requires so much work in thinking. And I'm, I'm going to require that of us a little bit today. For those of you who get bored in sort of lecture-style um, talks, I want you to know the first part of this will be sort of lecture-style, but at the end, we're going to get to the hearts. We're going to reach the head. We're going to reach the heart, I promise. Hang in there. If you find yourself nodding off in the first part, that's okay. We're going to bring it back around, okay? So hang with me. But in order to really understand this passage, we're going to have to do a little bit of word work together. Um, for some of you, this is going to be new territory, but I'm confident that this will be a fruitful time. Uh, as we grow in our understanding of, the, of reality as the Bible presents it. And, and I think it's going to be useful to you in understanding how it is that the Bible intersects with our modern view of the world. So let, let's dive in to the mind and to the world of the Bible. Let's start by being reminded of the context of verses 5 through 9. In chapter 1, the author makes the case that Jesus is the greatest messenger that God has ever sent and that he's bringing the greatest messenger or message that has ever been given. Then he uses various Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of God who righteously rules over all creation for eternity. He then proves that the angels are commanded to worship the son of God. And that the world that Jesus created will be brought to a place of surrender to his rule as the creator king. So by the time we exit chapter 1, there's a statement being made that he's about to expand upon in our passage today. And uh, he will expand upon it by quoting from Psalm chapter 8. And the last sentence from chapter 1 is a shocker, though. And in talking about the role of angels, the author says in verse 14, 
Are they not all ministering spirits, now check this out, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels, these, these ministers, these messengers of God, are sent for an explicit purpose from God. To do what? To serve those who are to inherit salvation. Then, in the first four verses of chapter 2, he gives a warning. This shocker that the angels were, were also used to, will also be used to serve God and to help those who will inherit salvation through Christ is his, his, his statement that he's going to be coming back to. So we're going to talk more about that. But in verses 1 through 4, he gives this warning. He says, therefore, if God judged his people in the Old Testament for their failure to listen to the messenger of angels and the message that they brought, that is the law at Mount Sinai, if judgment happened when you ignored those messengers and that message, what should we expect if we ignore the Son of God and the gospel that he brings? It's a very strongly worded warning. Now, the author is going to loop back around to complete the thought from verse 14 by proving it from Scripture. So, here is the claim from 114, now restated in verse 5 of chapter 2, where we see man's role in God's rule. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, to understand why this is so shocking, you have to understand how they understood the world that they lived in. This is not something that we hear about a ton, but we're forced to confront these truths as we attempt to deal accurately with the scriptures. The worldview of the Bible at times may strike us as very different than how we naturally perceive the world around us or, or what we've been taught about the world around us. The Bible opens with the story of God as the creator of everything. And as the creator, there's a clear distinction between him and the creation that he rules. God is the sovereign ruler over both the heavens and the earth. And the entirety of these two realms, realms the, the earthly realm and then the heavenly realm, constitute the kingdom of God or the, the place, the realms in which he has authority, all the heavens and all of the earth, okay? So this is the kingdom of God. But what God does, though, in the scriptures is very interesting. He shares his authority and his rule. Now, this is not because there's too much for God to do. Rather, it is because God delights in sharing his rule and delegating his authority. He finds joy in watching his creatures share in the management of what it is that he has created. And as humans try to understand God and his interaction with creation, the difference between earth and then the heavens became a helpful way of making sense of it all. The earth was the place that humanity dwelt. And the heavens, it was the earth being the place of physical creation, the heavens then were a place where man could not go. It was an unattainable place, a place where mankind was not permitted. And the heavens became a way to talk about the unseen realm of God. 
The heavens or the skies were the place that humans could not go, and the heavens were distinct from the earth because they were unreachable. And this was a great way for the ancients to understand the dwelling place of God, an unreachable place from where he rules the universe. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God finishes his earthly creation, he makes man and then delegates authority to express his rule on the earth in the physical creation. And this is often referred to as the cultural mandate found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God tells man to fill up the earth, subdue it, what, what it's like in the garden that he's placed mankind in. He wants to fill up the earth in the same capacity through man using his delegated authority to rule on the earth. Now, just like there is authority given to man on the earth, there are also beings in the heavens to which God shares his authority and his rule as well. There are angels. There are characters in the Bible called the cherubim, the seraphim. And then this strange group of people or beings, spiritual beings, I should say, strange group that is called the divine council, which operates kind of like God's staff team. Now, Cherubim are often pictured as chimera beasts. Uh, they, they often are these like hybrid creatures. They'll have like the face of a bull or of an eagle and then wings and these strange bodies, okay? And they tend to operate as guardians. Matter of fact, you'll remember that the guardians between the, e the, the garden of God, Eden, and the earth, everything outside of uh, the dwelling place of God where heaven and earth met in the Garden of Eden was, was guarded by these cherubim that had these flaming swords, right? So it's, these, are, these are strange guardian creatures that are meant to be intimidating. And then there are angels. Now, angels are like servants and messengers, and they are often in the Bible's in the Bible, mistaken as humans because they kind of resemble or look like humans. And then there's the seraphim. The seraphim are revealed in places like Ezekiel and Isaiah chapter 6. And these are creatures that appear to have some sort of serpent-like quality or dragon-like quality. And they tend to be pictured as sort of leading worship and the barrier between God's creation and the throne of God where he rules and reigns from. And then there's the divine council. The divine council is pictured as a group of spiritual beings that God sometimes involves in the process of making decisions in the heavens and on the earth. Now, most of the time, these heavenly creatures are pictured as taking counsel together to make decisions along with Yahweh. And Yahweh is the one who has the final say. Though he's fully capable of making the decisions on his own without them, he seems to find joy in the sharing. And you see this pop up in Scripture in places like Job chapter 1, for example. Let me, let me read to you what it says. Now, one day when the sons of God, that phrase, sons of God, is benai Elohim, and is often used as a reference for the divine counsel in the Old Testament. Now, 
One day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan also came among them, the Lord said to the Satan, from where do you come? Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Also pops up in Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his stand in the divine council in the midst of Elohim. That Elohim is a category title for spiritual beings. Okay, so God sometimes is called an Elohim in the scriptures. But other spiritual beings often get called an Elohim as well. And so God takes his stand in the divine council in the midst of the Elohim, he renders justice. Now, there's really too much to cover here, but there's an important piece that you need to understand in order to understand this passage here in Hebrews in its fullness. Just like God delegated authority to mankind to rule the earth, he delegates authority in the spiritual realm to spiritual beings. But this is where the story gets messy. There are a series of rebellions that end up having an effect on the whole of God's kingdom or the whole of creation. And these rebellions are both physical in the earthly realm and they are at the same time simultaneously a spiritual rebellion that is taking place. And these are summarized in the stories that take place in the garden, at the flood, and at the Tower of Babel. Those are the three successive rebellions that are lined out for us in the book of Genesis. Now, each of these rebellions end with a judgment that God, uh, that God meets out that has both earthly and heavenly or spiritual consequences. These are judgments on human and spiritual rebels that are in effect trying to establish the kingdom without God, without Yahweh as the king. And as a result, mankind is stripped of their right to share the rule of God. They are banished from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They are destroyed with a flood and eventually divided by language barriers at the Tower of Babel. And mankind is made lower than the angels. And furthermore, at the Tower of Babel, God divided not just the nations from themselves through the mixing of languages, but he also delegated spiritual beings to rule over the earth. And this is alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. And it's even more clearly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Let me read it to you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, or the Benai Elohim. There's that phrase again. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So again, that's Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9. So here's what's happening. At the Tower of Babel, the nations of the earth are dispersed. Spiritual beings are given authority over those people groups that are now separated by language. And those spiritual beings called the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, sometimes the divine council, seem to have authority on the earth in some way. Now, the problem is... These spiritual entities are not faithful in their task. 
in some passages, God proclaims judgment on these spiritual beings for their oppression of humanity, their lack of care for the poor. In other words, these spiritual beings were not ruling the nations well, nor representing Yahweh well. So, for example, in Psalm 82, verses 8 through 1, when you or 1 through 8, when you look at the entire passage, it reads like this. God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, the Elohim. He holds judgment. For how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is God speaking, you are God's Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit, check this out, the nations, all the people groups. They all belong to God. Okay? You've been delegated authority, but who has ownership? That's the real question. Yahweh has ownership. Now, for those of you who are like, okay, this is weird. I'm, I'm not sure I can hang with you. It's okay. I totally understand. Uh, listen, have you guys familiar with the Bible Project videos? Have you seen those kind of cartoony videos that explain books of the Bible? They have a special series on there called Spiritual Beings that walk you through the scriptures uh, that relate to these spiritual beings and the way that they interact with the world. And so I, I highly recommend that series. If you want to study it further, they also have a study guide, which is a seminary-level study guide. It gives you all the scripture references about these, these beings throughout the scriptures so that you can look at it for yourself and study it on your own. Okay, so God is handing out judgment on the Benai Elohim, the divine counsel. Meanwhile, though, there are promises that mankind will be restored to their former privilege and once again share the rule of God, not just on earth, but in the heavens as well. And so the descriptions of man's future role in God's rule comes up in various places throughout the Old Testament. One of the clearest is in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having a vision of these nations in conflict with the kingdom of God. And Daniel prophesied that at the end of the age, there would be a final rebellion where the spiritual rulers who use humans to do their bidding are finally defeated and God's rule in his kingdom is fully established. But notice how Daniel the prophet describes it for us. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, he says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. The horn he's referring to is attached to a, a, a spiritual beast that is also representative of a future empire on the earth. Okay, so it's the spiritual and earthly authority. It made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. The Ancient of Days, that's Jesus. And judgment was given to the saints given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed 
the kingdom. So there's a coming time where the enemies of God will be defeated and the saints will share the rule and authority over the heavens and the earth, the kingdom of God. So here in Daniel, you'll have the prophet looking forward to a time when God will share his rule and exercise his reign with humans over the entire kingdom of God, both heaven and earth. And this is why Paul would write later to the Corinthians to encourage them that they are able to settle disputes on their own without going to court. They can do this in-house. Remember, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he says, When one of you has an a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we humans are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So Paul assumes that the audience already knows God's plan to use humans to carry out his rule in the fulfilled kingdom of God. And here... In Hebrews chapter 2, the author assumes this common worldview for his audience. And he writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. Who is it that will be used to carry out the rule of God in the new heavens and the new earth? It's humans. Those who have been... Those who have trusted in the king and embraced his authority in their lives, they are the ones that God has declared will reign and rule with him in the fulfilled kingdom of God. Now, to strengthen that argument, the author then quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Now, as a side note, I love Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Hebrews. He points out that the author of Hebrews is not as much concerned with quoting who it was that wrote the psalm, but he's concerned with the voice behind the psalm, God himself, the divine author. In verse 6, he says, it has been testified somewhere. So he doesn't quote the, you know, the human author. He's thinking about God's word here. And then he gives the word of the psalmist, the words of the psalmist. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower a little, for a little while, lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this psalm strengthens the argument by showing that the psalmist prophesied of a time when God would use the weak things of the world to confound the strong. God's future, his plan for what is coming, is to take the sons of Adam, humans, from their humble estate and use them to rule his future kingdom when it comes in fullness. And for a little while, humanity has been made lower than the angels. But a day is coming when they will be crowned with glory and honor and everything will be placed in subjection under, check this out, human under human feet. Now, if you were to read the psalm in its entirety, the psalmist starts out by marveling that with the size of the heavens and the earth, that humans are like little babies. They're like infants in the universe. 
and how strange it is that they are given this kind of privilege. It, it blows his mind that God would choose the simplest of creatures to rule his amazing and complex creation. You see, man's role in God's rule is to share God's authority in the coming age. Now, as soon as the author says this, it becomes obvious that this has not happened yet. We don't see mankind exalted to this place of delegated authority yet. And because... That guy's really cool. <laughs> now, because the author carries such a high view of Scripture and the specific wording of Scripture that is used... He makes this very careful observation from the psalm about what it is actually saying. And he's doing this to prove that the kingdom, God's kingdom, his rule over the heavens and the earth, has been inaugurated, but has not yet been consummated. It hasn't come in its fullness yet, but it's begun. So to his audience and to us, the author is proving that this prophecy has already begun to be fulfilled. We are living right now in the already inaugurated kingdom, which is yet to be consummated in the coming kingdom of God. Okay? We live in the already, not yet. The second half of verse 8 the author keys in here on one word from the psalm. The word is everything. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. In other words, everything included in the everything from the psalm must also be the angels as well. And this, again, confirms the author's thinking about the coming kingdom of God. And then he makes this observation. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, the him referred to here in verse 8 is likely referring to the sons of Adam or of humanity that's being described in the psalm in its original context. And they are the ones who are the surprise recipients of authority from God to rule. And so the author is then saying, at the present time, we don't see humanity sharing the rule and reign of God in the way that God has promised would happen. But it is a guarantee that everything will be subjected to God's delegated authority in the future. So let's pause here for a moment to soak that truth in. You see, for the original audience and for us, knowing that we live in the already inaugurated kingdom that is not yet consummated gives us, first of all, if you're taking notes, a hope for tomorrow. And second of all, it gives us a mission for today. So living in the already not yet gives us a hope for tomorrow. What do we see at the present moment? Not everything is submitting to the rule of God. The spiritual conflict that has been there since the beginning is still happening right now. There is still spiritual rebellion taking place. The rebellion of God's lower creatures, of mankind, that is also still taking place. At present, not everything is submitting to the rule of God. Don't you feel that down to the core? The world is such 
a broken place. I don't know how many times in the last four years in particular that I've looked around and go, what is going on? Has the world lost its mind? What is happening around here? It seems like everything is falling apart. All the systems are, are falling apart. What is taking place? There is still a cosmic and spiritual rebellion happening at the same time that there is an earthly and human rebellion. And those who are part of the kingdom of God are living in this moment under the rule of God and his future and coming kingdom. In the present world, we're already living like that. We're living like citizens of a new Jerusalem in the presence of Babylon, or better yet, we function like ambassadors living in an embassy in an evil and hostile country. We know that there is a day when our kingdom will take over the world that we now inhabit. So no matter how crazy the world gets, we have hope for what is coming. So listen, we don't need to fear when it feels like the world around us is in spiritual, moral, or political decay. Why? Because we are looking to the coming and glorious kingdom where righteousness rules. Guys, we don't need to fear the trials, persecutions, and sufferings of this present life. Why? Because we are persuaded that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is coming in the kingdom of God. You know, later in the book of Hebrews, the author will say that this hope is like an anchor for our souls. It keeps us from being cast adrift in the tumult of life's storms. And so, this reality that right now, presently, you and I are living in the already not yet is meant to be an encouragement. Don't worry. Help is on its way. Don't worry. The king is coming. Don't worry. Brokenness isn't forever. It's a hope for tomorrow. But it's not only a hope for tomorrow. It is also a mission for today. Living in the already not, not yet gives us a mission for today. In the Old Testament, there's a story that I think illustrates this truth profoundly. In 2 Kings chapter 7, there's this moment in the history of Israel where Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, lays siege to Samaria. Now, to lay siege to a city meant that you surrounded the city with military might and you slowly starved it of resources until the city would have to cave to the pressure. So that, that's the whole idea of the siege. You're just like, okay, I'm waiting for them to either to give up, wave the white flag, or to be so weak they can no longer defend themselves, and then we'll go in and we'll just stomp them. Now, during the siege, it became such a crisis for resources that, this, that behind the walls of the city, people were selling a donkey's head for 80 pieces of silver. But that's not all they were eating. One quart of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. Imagine that. You come home, hard day's labor. Hey, babe, what's for dinner? Surprise. It's all we could afford. Some dove's dung soup. How about that? Now, in the previous chapter from 2 Kings chapter 6, we learn also that people had resorted to cannibalism not just eating donkey's heads and dove's tongue. They were eating people 
as they died, a woman comes to the king with a complaint. She says, hey, I made an agreement with my neighbor. I, I, I told her that today we'll eat my son who's died, and then when we run out of food, we'll, we'll boil your son, we'll eat him. Well, we ate my son, and now she's unwilling to give me her son. Make it right. That's how desperate things were behind the wall. It was brutal, brutal what is happening. However, God used the prophet Elisha to tell the people that their troubles would be over within 24 hours. Now, at the entrance of the gate of the city, there's four lepers, and they're having a debate among themselves. You see, lepers survived on the generosity, the charity of others, or, uh, or even at least by living on the trash that people threw away. But at this moment, nobody's throwing away anything, and there is no generosity. And under these extreme circumstances, these men are starving. And so they're having this discussion about what their next move is. In 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 and through 4, we get the contents of their discussion. They say, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Okay, here's, here's their, their argument. And they're like, okay, let's look through our options. If we go inside, everybody's starving in there, and we're going to starve too, and we're going to die. Or we can go out to the Syrians, in which case they may kill us, and we'll die. But they might not kill us. And if they don't kill us, they might take us as prisoners. And if they take us as prisoners, they're obligated to feed us, right? And then maybe we won't die. So... They resolved themselves to go out and resigning themselves to either dying by the hand of the Syrians or being kept and fed as prisoners of war, they decided to quite literally risk it for the biscuit. And they left. They made their way to the camp of the Syrians. Now, when they get there, what they discover is really interesting. It's nothing short of miraculous, actually. The camp was still set up. There are all the supplies that are still there but there's not a Syrian anywhere to be found. God had saved the Samaritans by causing the Syrians to be overcome with fear in the middle of the night. And they had all fled, leaving everything behind. So what did the lepers do? They raided the camp. <laughs> they immediately they just start going through the tents. And they, they ate themselves full. They drank themselves silly. And then they're like, nobody's here to stop us. And so they, they start harvesting all the silver and gold they can find and grabbing garments. And they're toting it away from the camp, dragging it through the desert, stashing it in places so that they can be rich after this whole thing is over. And on one of those trips, as they're making their way back to the camp, off in the distance, their eyes fall upon the city of Samaria. And they realize everybody in there is starving. Nobody knows that the victory is won. Nobody gets it. Nobody sees. And listen, this is, this is what they say. Take, take this to heart. They say, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and we wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. Second Kings chapter 7, verse 9. 
this is the mission that we have been given as those who are living in the already, not yet. Guys, the battle's over. Our king is triumphant. The world is brought under his rule, and we know how history will be concluded. We are already, right now, you and I, as members of the kingdom, we are already enjoying the benefits of this future and total deliverance. But there are people around us who are not. It's time to share the good news. We cannot make them leave their fortress of fear and taste and see what, what God is provided already we can't make them see the victory that God has given but how can we not tell them and at least give them the option of rescue we're not doing right if we keep it to ourselves so the author of Hebrews encourages his audience and us today that there is a future and coming kingdom where the every enemy of God is defeated and those who have put their trust in Christ will share in the responsibilities of running this kingdom under the authority of King Jesus. And this is meant to give them and give us a hope for tomorrow and a mission for today. And even more than that, it's meant to strengthen their attentiveness to the warning from verses 1 through 4. Therefore, pay much closer attention to Jesus and the message, the victory that comes through him. Pay much more attention to Jesus and to his gospel, his good news. Now this brings us to verse 9, the final thought for us to consider from this passage. How Christ's death brought life. Let's read verse 9 together. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay. So though we don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God being implemented at the moment, we do know that God has put his redemptive plan into motion. How do we know that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, was made lower than the angels and became a son of Adam, a human. And then Jesus lived as a son of Adam and rose again as the son of man and son of God. Here's what that means. The first human to have all enemies placed under his human feet is Jesus. And now, because of this, every person that comes to faith in Christ will also enjoy the benefits of Christ's victory over his enemies. Do you see how amazing this is? Keep track, if you will, of the logic and the worldview that we've been discussing. Psalm 8 makes it clear that though mankind was made lower than the angels, God would crown mankind with glory and honor, putting everything under his rule. And in Christ, we see that happening. So let's, let's take for just a moment some time to think about some of the ways that the Bible describes the work of Christ on the cross. What is happening in that moment? At the trial of Jesus before the, the high priests, Jesus makes this remark in Luke chapter 22. 
verses 52 and 53. When Jesus, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Now listen to this, this part. But this hour belongs to you and to the power of darkness. Physical reality, spiritual reality. Jesus saw his trial and execution as a confrontation with the spiritual powers of darkness. It was not just about the forgiveness of sin and man's rebellion. It was also about victory over the spiritual rulers of the world. It was a confrontation with the same rebellious spiritual beings that have been bucking against God ever since the beginning of creation. And it was also a confrontation with death itself. And in the cross... Jesus is dealing with all of those things. It's all being funneled to this moment on the cross where he is defeating the spiritual enemies of God, where he is also defeating sin and rebellion and making it possible for man to get saved, and where he is also beating death itself. This is why Jesus would say to his disciples and the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the beginning of everything being brought under the rule of God through the human divine man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is claiming that he is building his kingdom of rulers through all the nations that are now being gathered under his authority. He's telling the disciples, it's starting with you. It's starting with them. Bring the good news, the message that it's begun. It's happening. Now, furthermore, Paul would later describe to the Colossian church what was happening at the cross as Jesus suffered death for sin and defeated all of those spiritual authorities. And you, he says, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgive us all, forgiven us all our trespasses, there's the sin issue, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, he's defeating the spiritual rulers as well. Paul would also describe Jesus' victory over death itself. As a matter of fact, would you turn there with me? Turn, flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want you to see this for yourself. I want you to see how the logic of this plays out in the understanding of Paul, the apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. 
For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, Jesus is defeating death in stages. The first defeat is in his own resurrection. Then when he comes in his full authority, he will also raise all those who have died. Some will be raised to everlasting life. Some will be raised to everlasting judgment. And when they are raised, they will put on their eternal physical and spiritual bodies, and these new bodies are like Christ's body in the resurrection. They are both physical and spiritual. And then Paul would go on later in the same chapter to describe to the Corinthian church further details. So let's take a look at verse 35. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow or what you plant does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each and to each kind of seed is its own body. For not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. The glory, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars different, uh, differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are th those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, those who have believed in Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When Jesus died, he suffered death not just for himself, but for all those who believe in him. And when he was raised from the dead, he demonstrated that, this, that death was also defeated. And now that sin and the spiritual rulers of the world, of Satan, and of even death are defeated, he has been crowned with glory and has taken his throne in heaven. And for all those that have put their faith in this king, they will enjoy the benefits 
of his authority over all things. And even more than that, the Bible declares that he will administrate his authority through them. The promise of Psalm 8 awaits those who believe in the coming kingdom. So what? Why does this matter? Why does this matter to them? Why does this matter to us? Listen. For these Hebrew Christians, the pressure of trials, persecution, and hardship have made these believers weary, and they are wondering if they should go back to the old covenant way of relating to God. And the author is saying, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Isn't what you have in Christ better? And, and not only that, but the, the conflict in the world, the, the, what, what is happening is they, they, they meet with the world and clash and, and their own flesh being stacked against them. And then the presence of spiritual oppressive rulers and authorities have, have caused these believers in Jesus to feel defeated, to feel wearied. And the author is saying, Christ has already shown that he's victorious. Cling to him and share his victory. And fearing their own death, they have begun to wonder, is it worth it to suffer so much? And the author says to them, death has been defeated as well. Your death doesn't mark defeat, but begins the ultimate victory that Christ has promised to those who believe. This is a hope that anchors us through the storms of life. As he closes out 1 Corinthians 15, would you read with me what he says beginning in verse 50? He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or not all die, but we shall be ch all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, who are alive and remain, will be changed. For this perishable body must put on Imper the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality and when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the uh, puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your sting oh death where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in this life is not in vain. Because the kingdom's coming. The reward is real. It's already begun. We've seen it happen in Jesus, and it's going to happen for us as well. Take heart, my friends. The world is not falling apart. Jesus is on the throne. Take heart, friends. No matter what spiritual conflict you are in right now, no matter what you are going through in life, no matter what principalities and powers and rulers and forces of spiritual wickedness and heavenly places are doing whatever damage they're doing on the earth, they do not win. Jesus wins. Take heart. Suffering is not forever. Eternal glory and joy awaits us because of Christ.
Friends, take heart. Death does not win. Cancer does not win. Decay is not our eternal state. Death is just the beginning of an eternity where we see every last enemy put under our feet. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Why can we say that? Because Jesus is a superior messenger with a superior message who secures for us a superior victory. Amen? As Trevor comes back up to lead us in worship, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the victory that we have in you. Thank you that even right now, as each one of us are facing our own trials, our own suffering, our own conflict, whether that be with the world, our own flesh, whether that be with the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, that our victory is guaranteed. God, thank you that there is no need to fear death. Thank you, God, that when our loved ones perish, when cancer wrecks our bodies, when disease is rampant, when the world is under a pandemic, that death is not the end of our story. It is the beginning of eternal glory. And that that glory is increasing with infinite capacity because of our infinite God. We'll be exploring the reaches of your grace and the glory of who you are for all of eternity, never bored. We're going to be with you. And God, we praise you. We praise you that if even in this moment today I leave this pulpit and breathe my last somewhere, that that is not the end of the story. I'm just awaiting the resurrection. I'm absent from the body, present with you. And there's coming a day when every enemy I have ever known in this life, where every enemy we have ever known in this life is crushed under the weight of your authority and rule. Thank you for that promise. Make it an anchor now for our souls. In the name of Jesus, amen.